Hi everyone, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. My name is Vince Leo, I'm the author of the film review website Quipster.net. I invite you to check out over 4,000 of my written reviews, you can read there anytime at Quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Today, continuing on with the Swords of Enchantment, films of the 1980s in which a sword features prominently, a sword that has more than just a typical sword's powers. Excalibur, the probably the most well-known of the magical sword movies of the 1980s, is the film I'm going to be reviewing next. It's a 1981 film. It's a fantasy adventure drama. It's R-rated because of strong bloody violence, nudity, sexuality, and language, something that a fairly young Vince Leo found very interesting to watch when he was 12 and 13 years old. Yes, I, I caught that. There's supposedly an edited PG version of this film that was released at some point, but I have never seen that version, and I can't imagine what it would look like or whether it would be as enjoyable. It's a two-hour and 20-minute movie. The cast, and when I read the cast, just know that almost none of these big names today were really big names back then. In fact, uh, the director, John Borman, actually cast this film because he wanted the story to overshadow the actors and not the other way around, even though when he was trying to make this movie a little bit earlier, back in the 70s, he wanted such actors as Sean Connery and Max Van Sydow and Lee Marvin, if you can believe that. So the cast here, Nigel Terry, Nicole Williamson, Helen Mirren plays a prominent role, Nicholas Clay, Liam Neeson in a smaller role, Patrick Stewart, Paul Jeffrey, Gabriel Byrne, Kieran Hines are also in this film. Yes, all big stars today. Not so much back then. The screenplay is credited to Borman, who also directed, and Rospo Pallenberg, which is based on Le Mort d'Arthur by Thomas Mallory, at least in some part. John Borman, as I mentioned, co-scripted and directed the film. He made this film after another project didn't get off the ground. He intended a very adult take on J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings films. He was going to make it all into one movie and add a lot of sex and violence into it. Never quite got off the ground, like I said, but Excalibur was something he had planned since the late 60s to make as well, although it was called a variety of different things along the way. Finally, he settled on Excalibur instead of Merlin or Merlin and the Knights of King Arthur and all these other various titles he'd intended. This is a very ambitious take, also a brutally violent one, on the legend of King Arthur. It's somewhat based on that Mallory work that I mentioned, but there were several other uncredited sources that Borman used. The director claimed that Mallory was the first hack writer. He didn't really have a lot of regard for Mallory's original work. He preferred the take of more modern writers that covered a lot of the same material, especially Jesse Weston, if you've ever read any of Weston's work. And he also infused a lot of notions of memories and dreams that you could find in the works of psychologist Carl Jung, who John Borman was a big fan of. 
There's an occasional mix here of blood and gore. It really does bear a striking contrast to the beaming and shiny and unblemished armor that we see within the film. Sometimes that blood and gore mixes with that armor, and it suggests in that mingling that good can always prevail against evil, but eventually good will only last so long before things devolve into rot and chaos and evil yet again. And beyond this, this sometimes anti-realist film appropriately, which is also about the coming end to humankind's view of the world as a place of mystery and magic and of the direct connection with nature in favor of living a life of reason and science above primitivism and the belief in the supernatural, the forced dominion of the land, which feeds into that notion that Arthur and the land are one, and that's a recurring theme of the film, and the separation from that land through the building of great castles and citadels is very thematically resonant in capturing that dichotomy between nature and progress of humankind. Excalibur does tell the tale from Arthur's point of view, from the circumstances of his conception all the way to the circumstances of his death. Borman here selectively chooses the eras to depict of Arthur's life. He concentrates thematically more on the myth than he does the man. Longtime stage actor Nigel Terry stars as Arthur from his teenage years all the way till he is an old man. He was 35 at the time of playing Arthur. That made it a stretch both ways, playing a teenager and an old man. Nicole Williamson plays his sometimes ally, the seemingly ageless sorcerer named Merlin, who we see make kings out of at least two men, Arthur's father, Uther Pendragon, and then Arthur himself later. The lower class Arthur ascends to the throne straight away when he pulls the titular fabled sword out of the giant stone that his father had shoved into it to keep it from enemy hands. Once he is the king of all of Britain, Arthur enjoys a time of peace and prosperity unknown in the history of the blood-soaked land, especially after the formation of the round table of his most trusted knights. But, as they say, every rise must eventually fall. Although many people know the Arthurian legend for the quest for the grail, depicted less holy here than a holy grail, removed from some of its Christian context, this is limited to a part of the film, a small part of the film. It offers up a bizarre and ultimately engrossing odyssey of the fight for the soul of Camelot from forces trying to take it down. Although the narrative does move forward in time, a lot of that is left to the imagination as the years progress. We jump into the action having to intuit where everyone is at particular points in their lives, and we have to use conjecture to ascertain why they may have changed in their appearance and their personality since the last time we saw them in a scene before. Some of this is symptomatic of a troubled production. Some of this is also the byproduct of Borman's muscular style in itself. Nevertheless, the film still works as a sometimes haunting, sometimes surreal take on the Arthurian legend, although not nearly as odd as Borman's previous film Zardoz. And it makes a lasting visual impression that lingers far longer in the mind than straightforward story elements could or would. It's like a two-hour recounting of a hallucination that one had in the distant hazily remembered past but then regurgitated onto the big screen. The main story arc of the film could be seen as Arthur's tale, although one could argue that the backbone of the film is in following the story of the titular Enchanted Sword. The origin of the sword Excalibur and its reason to exist, those are left to the imagination. Borman chose to sidestep trying to explain the unexplainable and he opted to use the mystery of sorcery as just part of this strange world in which the magicians and the mortals cohabitate. The script is nearly devoid of humor, and yet the film plays out so self-seriously and also dramatically heightened about even the smallest things that it kind of works as a form of uncanny comedy. The acting is stagey, 
Perhaps intentionally so, Borman cast primarily stage actors to bring out the characters as over-the-top in demeanor and grandiose in traits, just this side of Shakespearean, but without the poetic flourishes of the bard. The bulk of the conflict in Excalibur stems from the repercussions of Arthur's father, Uther, who made a pact with the wizard Merlin in order to seduce a rival's wife and then conceive of the future King Arthur. In Witness is a young Morgana, a blend of several of Mallory's characters infused into Arthur's half-sister here, who grows up to be quite a sorceress herself and one who's bound to seek revenge on the destruction of her own family years before by taking down the illegitimate kingdom of Arthur. Just as important to the story is the courtship of Arthur with the lovely Lady Guinevere, as well as the self-conflict regarding the passions that bubble up from the noble knight Lancelot, the greatest knight of the land, vying for the hand here of the king's beloved wife, at least on the side. As a conflicting, uneasy marriage of class and crass, Excalibur the film can be a polarizing movie in terms of how well it plays to different audiences. Some viewers are going to love the visual punch, others are going to find some of those visuals repugnant. Some will enjoy the dreamlike way in which the story is depicted without a lick of care for narrative logic, while other people viewing this film are going to find its slim pickings unbefitting one of the greatest stories told over the last several centuries in the Arthurian myths. It builds up the legend while simultaneously deconstructing it, preferring to see the journey of Arthur from child to old king as a strange but profound fantasy full of pleasurable treasures and painful regrets, avoiding the internal psychology of the characters in favor of ostentatiously lustful yearnings and outlandishly violent resolutions. As far as the assets of the film, I would say this is a very lavishly depicted Oscar-nominated cinematography here from Alex Thompson. It's very striking to behold. It's filmed often with great difficulty in the hilly rural areas of Ireland. And I think those visuals leave most of the lasting impressions of the film. If you've seen it, you'll remember it many years later for those visuals. This is in combination with a very alternately lush and powerful score from Trevor Jones, Jones' score is probably not as memorable, though, as the way that Borman connects operatic German classical works, such as from Karl Orff, especially the oft-used movie trailer staple called O Fortuna, which was from Carmina Burana. And there's bits of Richard Wagner's works also strewn about throughout Excalibur. This is a treat for the eyes and the ears, above and beyond the rip-roaring but sketchily presented adventure underneath. Although this is not mounted with the kind of studio backing that's usually befitting of this genre, it does look and feel like a grandiose epic with all of the benefits and a few of the flaws such an undertaking generally necessitates, but with a completely captivating and alluring presentation that resonates like an unusual and striking fever dream. You know, this is a film that has stayed with me a lot over the years, and it's something that I was very much looking forward to revisiting. I haven't actually seen it probably in at least a couple of decades, so I was really looking forward to this, and it actually lived up to my expectations. I really do enjoy Excalibur for all of that bravado that John Borman brings into it, and for that uniqueness that it brings as well. It definitely is a very unique take on a very familiar legend, and one I would actually recommend. So three and a half stars out of four is what I'm giving Excalibur. Three and a half stars on my scale means that I do think that it is a good film, and definitely worth recommending if this sounds of appeal to you. So hopefully you enjoyed this review. If, if you did, I do encourage you to click the subscribe button and you'll continue to get all of my films of the 1980s reviewed. I do this every week, so 
check it out next week we're going to continue on with the last of the swords of enchantment films that i'm going to be reviewing at least for a while with a 1987 film completely on the other end of the spectrum in many ways from john borman's take on excalibur i'm going to be reviewing the film based on a collection of very popular toys from the 1980s i'm going to be reviewing the big screen version of Masters of the Universe from 1987. Yes, starring Dolph Lundgren. A film that I saw in the movie theaters at the time with my young brother. And boy, I hated that movie at the time. I did see it again in order to review it from my website. I liked it more than I did the first time. So now I'm going to see if it actually has aged well. I'm skeptical about that, but we shall see. And you will also listen to that next week. Masters of the Universe coming up on the next podcast. Until next time, thanks everyone for joining me on this journey around the world in 80s movies.